0: I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. The Every Student Succeeds Act, the federal education law passed in 2015, is part of what would seem to be a dying breed major pieces of domestic policy legislation passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. How did ESSA come to be? What does it mean for American students? And with a little more than a year under its belt, how's it holding up? I'm Marty West, editor-in-chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Rick Hess, director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute and an executive editor at EdNext. Along with Max Eden, Rick is the co-editor of the new book, the Every Student Succeeds Act, what it means for schools, systems, and states, an excerpt of which is available today at educationnext.org. Rick, welcome to the Ednext podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Marty.
0: Now, I should admit up front that I have a chapter in this book, so I'm not exactly an unbiased observer, but I think it's really excellent, a good primer not only on what the law says, but also on how it passed and where it stands in the context of the history of the federal role in American education. So, let's start with the basics. What is ESSA? Why was it needed? And what were you and Max hoping to accomplish with this book?
1: Sure. So ESSA is the latest reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was first passed back in 65 as part of uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Um, It was needed because the last reauthorization of ESEA, the No Child Left Behind Act, uh, had become a a poisoned brand in American education. Uh, parents hated it. Uh, educators hated it. Uh, folks on Capitol Hill were trying to back away from it, and so ESSA was a, was an attempt to try to correct for a bunch of what they thought were the mistakes that had been made through the best of intentions in NCLB. And in this book, what Max and I are really hoping to do is to give policymakers, educators, interested, you know, families and communities um, a tool to better understand the law, understand what's possible, and hopefully help them realize the potential.
0: And so help us understand exactly the major changes that ESSA made relative to No Child Left Behind. What were seen as the problems? What were the real problems and what changes were made?
1: Sure. So I think the biggest problem is there's a sense that NCLB had led to over-testing in America's schools. Um, that, that's the biggest. A second is there was concern that Washington had gotten just too involved in schooling and deciding which schools were doing okay and which weren't, and in telling schools, uh, states and school districts, what they had to do to make schools get better. Um, and third, because there was so much frustration with all that stuff, the Obama administration had started to give waivers to states, um, flexibility from out from under No Child Left Behind, if they agreed to do a bunch of stuff that the Obama administration liked, um, stuff like Common Core and teacher evaluation. So and so, so, what ESSA tried to do, to the best of its ability, was uh, – Throw out, you know, throw out the bathwater, but keep the baby. It retained NCLB's commitment to transparency. States still have to test uh, every student in grades three to eight regularly in reading and math. Uh, And they have to test again in high school at one grade level. And they have to test in science in elementary, middle, and high. None of that changed. States still have to report that data. They have to break it out. In fact, they've got to break it out in a couple of new ways. Um, But what ESSA really did change was it got Washington mostly out of the business of telling states which schools were doing okay. It got Washington entirely out of the business of telling states how they're supposed to improve schools that need to get better. And it pinned back the secretary's arms in a pretty dramatic fashion so that not only do Obama waivers relating to stuff like Common Core or teacher evaluation, are those no longer in effect, but in fact it restricts the new secretary of education, Betsy DeVos's ability to do anything similar.
0: So I think it's fair to say that the law's passage in late 2015 was an unexpected development. President Obama called it a Christmas miracle when he signed it. And you admit, I think, in the book that you were convinced that the law didn't have a chance earlier that year. Why were you pessimistic at that time? And in retrospect, what did you
1: get wrong? Uh, (laughs) One of the dangers of being me is I always get a lot wrong. Um, Yeah, I was totally caught by surprise. I think some people like you uh, (laughs) had actually called it more correctly. Uh, But you say why. Uh, Here's what I got wrong. Um, One, I thought the Republican caucus was just too divided. Uh, In Washington, you've got this Freedom Caucus on Capitol Hill which is about a group of, you know, 40 or 50 um, Tea Party conservatives who really want Washington out of a lot of things, including especially education. Um, I thought they thought that any deal like ESSA was going to keep Washington too involved because it doesn't change NCLB nearly as much as they would have liked. Um, The second thing I got wrong was um, I thought, Secretary uh, Arnie Duncan had so completely poisoned relations uh, with Capitol Hill, with Republicans on Capitol Hill, um, that nobody was going to be able to sit down and have a reasonable, constructive conversation, because Duncan had wielded such a free hand, first with race at to the top, um, and then in promoting these waivers that I mentioned a moment ago, um, that there was real distrust among Capitol Hill Republicans. Um, what I got, so those were the big things I got wrong that I thought would prohibit a deal. What I especially missed was one that Senator Lamar Alexander, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, not only I understood how badly he wanted to get this thing fixed, what I don't think I fully appreciated. Was even in the modern polarized environment of Washington, uh, how much his skills, his credibility, his relationships would help him bridge some of the stuff that was in the way? Um, the second thing i don't appreci- i don't think I appreciated was how much members of Congress had really gotten into their bones uh, these concerns about overtesting and wanted to do something about it and the third thing I think I missed was that the White House and President Obama uh, really wanted another uh, legacy victory. And even though Duncan wanted to keep his waivers in place, I think, and even though they thought that a Democrat would probably be in better position after the 2016 elections, um, I think the Obama White House decided that they wanted to get a deal done.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. The only thing I would add to that narrative, I think, is the fact that many of the accountability hawks, you might call them, both in the business community on the right and uh, you know, uh, more reform-oriented Democrats on the left, uh, watched the trajectory of the debate over what to do with No Child Left Behind over a period of you know, almost a decade unfolding, and they saw that the conversation was just moving further and further away from their ideal point, favoring a stronger federal role in school accountability. And I think they realized, especially with the rising concerns about anti-testing and how much members of Congress were feeling those, that um, they weren't gonna get a better deal anytime in the near future.
1: Yeah, no, I I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, I think they guessed right. The irony um, is I think they had some hesitations about previous versions that would have reauthorized the law that would have given them more of what they wanted. and they held back on those.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, I think they learned the lesson. Uh, their lesson a bit late, a bit late for given what they were trying to accomplish.
1: That's right. But you know what? Uh, on the other hand, I, th- I think you're exactly right. If they were, if this were on the table in 2017 with the Trump administration and the new Congress, um, it would be a fascinating debate.
0: So, in your introduction, you present debates over the federal role in American education as really being about how to navigate the tensions between two amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the Tenth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. What do you and Max mean by this, and where do you see
1: is coming down on that debate? Sure. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's basically a political scientist way to uh, uh, make clear a, a, a pretty obvious point. Um, the Tenth Amendment, as listeners will, will, you know, will remember, uh, is the one that reserves um, authorities not expressly given to Washington uh, to the states. The 14th Amendment, of course, is one of the Civil War Amendments, uh, which ensures equal opportunity, uh, promises equal opportunity for all Americans. Um, The 10th Amendment intuition is really, look, education is fundamentally such a child-centered activity, right? Obvious. Uh, It's so human. It's so grounded in families and communities that there's just a lot of justifiable uh, skepticism that complicated rules made in Washington are the best way to make sure kids are well served. The 14th Amendment intuition is, look, when you look over the span of American history, it's clear that communities and states have not done their best to ensure equal opportunity for all kids. Um, various kids, for various reasons, including ethnicity and race, have been systematically shortchanged in offensive and sustainable ways. And so there are those who think Washington has to step up and make sure that doesn't happen. Um, One way to understand the education debates in Washington is always this tension where most of us, uh, you know, believe that there's some truth to both of these. And most of these debates are us trying to wrestle with what's the right way to sort out the tension between the 10th and the 14th. Uh, I think NCLB leaned much more to the 14th Amendment side of that continuum. Uh, and I think what we see in ESSA is a movement back towards uh, much more concern and respect for the 10th Amendment side. Uh, both are still in that continuum. I don't think we're ever going to not be on it. Um, but what I think we've seen is a significant move for, uh, uh, you know, along that line.
0: Now I sometimes worry that we as scholars and pundits place too much emphasis on what's new in a law like ESSA, without paying as much attention to what remains in place. For example, I'm struck by the extent to which the law leaves the basic structure of federal education policy largely as it has been. At the end of the day, just how radical a departure is, ESSA? Where do you and your authors come down on that?
1: You know, I mean, one of the things listeners ought to check out in the book is, you know, you and Chad Alderman, uh, who was in the Obama administration and is now at Bellwether uh, Education, have a wonderful kind of, and I think very illuminating, back and forth on what the law got right and wrong. And I think if you read that, one of the things you recognize is what we're doing is we're probably uh, 70% of ESSA uh, is philosophically and practically pretty much identical to NCLB and ESEA. Uh, not only did you mention that the structure for funds getting distributed the same, but the language is the same. Title I and the effort to make sure that funds are, you know, serving low income kids and the concern for concentrations of poverty. Like, all of this has not changed. What has changed is a lot of the specific accountability architecture uh, that NCLB imposed. So, NCLB tried to make sure that states were going to have highly qualified teachers serving kids. Well, turns out that when feds try to get into judging teacher qualification, mostly you wind up with a new paper chase. Uh, ESSA pretty, you know, ESSA got rid of that. Um, NCLB tried to provide a series of remedies for what to do about schools that were thought to be in need of improvement. Well, there's no evidence that those remedies actually worked as intended or made much difference for kids. Uh, ESSA has gotten the federal government out of the business of saying, which remedies are you supposed to use? NCLB had a very, Uh, intrusive strategy for deciding whether schools were performing adequately or not. Uh, States had to set a bar uh, based on standards reading and math tests, had to decide what constituted proficiency on those tests, had to look at each subgroup of students by grade level, by race, race, ethnicity, gender, special needs, language, all kinds of stuff, make sure that each of these groups had an appropriate percentage on the reading and math tests. If any group missed the desired percentage, Well, the school is now in need of improvement. You know, ESSA has gotten Washington out of that business and given states only some broad guidelines about how to decide whether or not schools are performing adequately. But the the idea that states have to test every child in targeted grades regularly, the idea that states have to report that data, the the idea that states actually have to break it out in new ways, say, for homeless children or children in military families. Um, The idea that states have to actually add another indicator of performance, Um, all of that retains and, in some cases, even modestly builds upon NCLB. I think the Wall Street Journal basically got it right in its editorial. Uh, They said this has been the biggest rollback, certainly in education and arguably in domestic policy, we saw in a couple decades But rolling it back pretty much gets us back to where we were in the middle of the Clinton years, Mm. which is hardly a radical assault on Washington's role in American life.
0: And again, it leaves the basic structure of federal education policy, which has big implications for actually how state education policy is organized as well in place. You don't see, for example, a shift you could imagine a very different approach to allocating federal aid for education that relies much more on competitive grants, perhaps performance-based funding to states. You just didn't see those ideas even become part of the conversation.
1: No, you're exactly right. You could have also seen, uh, you know, the the Tea Party constituency. So, again, the Freedom Caucus wanted a Heritage Action Proposal, which would have been involved dramatic block granting to states. You didn't see that. Uh, There was a proposal that passed the House that would have allowed Title I dollars to follow children to the public school of their choice. Uh, That did not make it into the final legislation. Um, in fact, you know, for folks who follow this long enough, you know, guys like you and me, um, if you think back to what Bill Clinton proposed in his 94 proposal to reauthorize ESEA, ESEA, he wanted to test kids once in elementary school, once in middle school, once in high school, and report those scores, and that was considered too radical a step at the time. So, another way to think about this is this is on steroids what Clinton had hoped to do in 94. Um, Um, And and so one way to think about this is basically he's taken the long way home. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, one of the disadvantages of moving as quickly as you did with this book is that you had to focus mainly on what's in the law itself and less on its implementation. And when we think about the implementation of a law like this, we're thinking not just about what the federal government does, but also how states respond to what the federal government is saying about what the law requires, do you have any observations at this point about how the implementation process has gone?
1: Um, you know, I, I think, honestly, there are people who are down in the weeds, for, at least for somebody like me who follows this at a broad level. I think it's just too hard to say. There are states uh, that basically hit the ignition. Um, you know weeks <laughs> after after the bill was done, and they 're you know they 're far along in their planning there 's other states that have been later to the party uh, there 's groups like the Council of Chief State School Officers and Chiefs for Change that have been getting state superintendents together, working with them on plans and strategies. but the reality is it 's easy to write plans on paper; what matters is when rubber hits the road and uh I think what we're going to start seeing is come August and September, uh, we're going to start seeing what those plans look like in practice.
0: So on Friday, February 10th, just a couple days after being confirmed by the full Senate, new Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos sent a letter to the chief state school officers that you just mentioned, updating them on her approach to ESSA implementation. What did we learn from that letter, and you know how is – her approach going to differ from what we might have seen under a Clinton administration?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's a wonderful question. Uh, her, her letter was, uh, again, I, I'd be curious how you read it. <laughs> um, to me, it was pretty much two things. One, uh, I am going to be very hands-off as secretary, uh, which is no great surprise. People talk a lot about Betsy DeVos' support for school choice. They forget that she's also a passionate um, conservative who believes in the importance of state and community control over any manner of public policy. Um, So, one, I think it said, look, the department is going to give you lots of leeway, but we're certainly moving forward with the expectation that states are running with the ball. Two, she made note that Congress, uh, under the Congressional Review Act, may be striking down – The key uh, regulations that the Obama administration had put forth to regulate the law, for folks who don't follow this stuff closely, uh, the Obama regulations were enormously controversial, um, because under Secretary John King, there was real concern that rather than respect the spirit and the letter of the law in an attempt to get Washington uh, to back away from micromanagement, uh, that John King in the Obama administration had sought to retain much of the Washington control that to tried to address. Um, you know, part of this question going forward is going to be whether Congress actually does um, you know, use the CRA to pull those regulations and what new DeVos regulations might look like. Under a Clinton administration, you know, boy, um, given how close uh, Hillary Clinton was with both teacher unions um, and given how, how much the teacher unions had grown concerned about Washington's role. It's actually an open question whether the guidance would have looked a whole lot different. I mean, Marty, what's your take on this? What, what, you, what was your reaction when you read it?
0: Well, what I saw above all was an attempt to provide clarity and certainty for states that they could continue with their planning process, which I thought was extraordinarily important. There had been a lot of speculation about what we'd see under the new administration. And of course, Uh, a lot of uncertainty about what Congress was maybe in the midst of doing. The House has already voted to rescind the Obama administration's accountability regulations, and it may be that the Senate will follow through. And so states that are already deeply engaged in the planning process, guided largely by those uh, regulations that the Obama administration promulgated, as well as by sort of a template that the department had developed for states to use, needed to know whether they should continue going down this path, whether the deadlines would change. And so I think she was saying, look, I don't know exactly what Congress is going to do, But here's what you can expect. You're still writing for the same deadlines. Uh, We are going to take a look at that template that you've been using, and we're going to make sure that it doesn't ask you to give us one piece of information that we're not required to get from you under the federal law, but that the work you're doing now will not be wasted and you should continue moving forward. So I, I felt actually that something like that was essential for states to have certainty and for DeVos to be able to send a message that, She's getting up to speed on the details of federal education policy, and she recognizes that she's charged with doing more than promote school choice, but also to oversee the implementation of this new law.
1: Yeah. No, I, th- I think you just said that beautifully. The one thing I would just point out uh, for, for, for casual listeners on this stuff—I um, don't know how many casual listeners we get, but people who don't follow the Washington ins and out so much—is um, the point you made that, uh, that, that, that whatever happens to the Obama-era regs, of course, to the extent that either Congress or DeVos go ahead and pull back on those, it's going to give states more degrees of freedom, more latitude to do things that might not have flown under the King regulations.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, one last question. Uh, Rick, as you know, ESSA is scheduled for revision in 2019, which means that it has an unusually short four-year authorization window. At the same time, Senator Alexander, who you mentioned was one of the law's leading architects on the Republican side, projected when it was passed that the law will govern the federal role in K-12 education for the next 10 or 20 years. So I want to put you on the record. Where would you set the over-under for how long ESSA will be on the books?
1: Um, so I'll put it the So one, I think what Alexander meant uh, is that the template, the blueprint of ESSA is likely to guide policy, um, even if it's reauthorized. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if the Republicans hold the Senate in 2018, um, And it's a very favorable playing field. Um, I think the law will be reauthorized in 2019 on schedule. Uh, If the Democrats have a big midterm election, um, it seems hard to see over the next four years a lot of big bipartisan bills getting done. Then I would not expect the law to get reauthorized on time.
0: Sounds good. Uh, Before we close, I understand that you've been working on another book as well, which shouldn't surprise us, given the pace with which you churn these things out. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Give it a quick plug.
1: Sure. Uh, It's letters to a young education reformer. Um, You know, you and I have been doing this for a long time. Um, I've been involved as a teacher and a school reformer for about a quarter century now. Uh, And I think I've made lots and lots of mistakes. And I've seen people make lots and lots of mistakes. And so this is a series of letters uh, to help other reformers, especially maybe 20 sums, but really anybody who's in a reflective mood, make sense of where we've stumbled, why we've stumbled, um, and how we can do better at this critical work.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to taking a look at that when it comes out. And while we're promoting your material, I should say that I used several of the draft chapters from this ESSA book in my teaching last fall and had great success. I'll be using the book itself next year, so. For anyone out there putting together a syllabus, uh, I'd say it's not too late to get it on this spring, I think.
1: Uh, that's, you know We want to help people make sure they understand this stuff and understand how it works in the real world. So uh, ho- hopefully folks will find it useful that way.
0: Rick Hess is the Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and an Executive Editor at Education Next. You can find an excerpt of his new book on the Every Student Succeeds Act on our website at educationnext.org. Rick, thanks for taking the time to join me today.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Marty.
0: You've been listening to the Ednex Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening through iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.